Welcome to Alumni Voices, a podcast series from Oxford University. I'm Guy Collander, and this month I'm on the road. I'm in Washington, D.C., where I'm meeting former students as part of the Alumni Weekend in North America. I'm joined by Kathleen Sullivan, one of the best legal minds in America and the former Dean of Stanford Law School. We're going to hear about appearances in the U.S. Supreme Court and what it is like to work at America's finest universities but also about how Oxford contributed to her stellar career. Kathleen Sullivan, thank you for agreeing to share your story. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, could you tell us how you came to study at Oxford? Toward the end of my studies at Cornell University, some students who were ahead of me had gotten scholarships to Oxford, and they told me I should try to get one too. And so I applied for and was lucky enough to receive a Marshall Scholarship, uh, one of the greatest gifts that the United Kingdom has ever given to the United States, thanks for the Marshall aid after the war. George Marshall, he he wrote to the first Marshall Scholars, that was back in 1954, speaking of a close accord between our two countries, the role of the scholarships in promoting understanding. What was the impact of your time in Oxford and the UK? When the Marshall Scholarship took me to Oxford, and I was lucky enough to be at Wadham College, at a time when women were very new at Wadham College, I must add, I, my eyes were opened up to uh, a world that I would never have known about had I not been to Oxford. I think it, the Marshall created a lifelong connection to many of my British colleagues, many of my British mentors, and my continuing association with Marshall Scholar alumni has led me to stay in touch with that connection. And I think for all of us, it taught us about the importance of knowing about the origins of American institutions in their British roots. It taught us about the importance of comparative reflections Mm. on the ways in which U.S. institutions differ from those in the U.K. and Europe. And it also led to a, a lifelong appreciation of the relationship with the UK. And certainly lots of similarities, but also lots of differences. Churchill once said, two nations divided by a common language. Yes, and you might also say, two nations divided by a common legal culture. We both have the common law, we both have a sense of rights, tracing back to Magna Carta and the Bill of Rights, but there are many differences too between our legal cultures. And what did you learn from studying philosophy, politics and economics, PPE, at Wadham College in Oxford? I learned a great deal about the ways in which uh, social democratic traditions were different from the more libertarian culture of the United States. I learned a great deal about how the parliamentary system was different from the sort of winner-take-all system that we tend to run our political institutions with and how that might give rise to more representation than we can sometimes have in our U.S. system. I also learned a great deal about the world economy. I thank my years at Oxford for teaching me an enormous amount that became very important in my legal career. You studied literature at Cornell. You studied uh, philosophy, politics, and economics at Oxford. What were the biggest differences in your experiences at those different institutions studying different subjects? Well, arriving at Oxford was such a sea change from my American university education because of the tutorial system. I had been in lecture classes or relatively large classes in my American university. When I came to Oxford, apart from the dreaming spires and the incredible magic of, and beauty of the place and the wonderful set of opportunities there, both cultural and athletic, and 
apart from that, I couldn't believe that I got to be in tutorials where I had the, the professor's full attention for an hour along with one or two other students. The tutorial system teaches you critical thinking and the ability to think on your feet in a way that no other form of education can. You have to anticipate the questions. You have to be prepared to answer them. You have to be prepared to change your position or defend your position. So there's no doubt that I owe a great deal of my success as a lawyer to my times in tutorials at Wadham College. And aside from your studies, what else occupied your time while you were at Oxford? Well, I undertook a great many extracurricular activities. I was drafted, like many other American women, onto the Wadham ladies' crew. Right. Now, I had played many sports, but I had never sat backwards in a boat rowing up a river being commanded by a very small person with a megaphone. But I loved it. Good, good. Being up at dawn and out on uh, at the boathouse, competing with other crews and the festivity of the boat race days was something I'll never forget. I also played on the Oxford tennis team. I'll never forget playing doubles against Cambridge one afternoon, and I was doing rather well until 4 o'clock when everybody suddenly stopped for tea. And I thought, well, in the United States, we don't stop for tea regardless of the score. <laughs> and after we came back, and it was a very good tea, I don't think we did as well as we were doing before. I also sang in the Oxford Bach Choir. I acted in plays. I have to admit that I was cast in one play, probably because I had a better American accent for the glass menagerie than right. many of my British competitors. It was cast by Kaz Phillips at Queen's. He went on to be a famous novelist, and it was wonderful. So the full Oxford experience, not just in the library. That's right. And we're speaking just ahead of Oxford's alumni weekend in North America. How are you still involved with your alma mater? I've been involved for all these years with the Association of Marshall Scholars, and so that connection has brought me back to Oxford on many occasions. More recently, I've been back to Wadham. I was invited by the warden of Wadham to, and the faculty to become an honorary fellow of Wadham College. And Fantastic. I can't describe to you the wonder and pride that I felt sitting at high table with the Dons when I had eaten in Hall many years ago as, as, a, as a student, to sit up at high table and to be among some of the fellows who had taught me was a, a, just a remarkable, almost miraculous experience. Now I'd like to move beyond Oxford. So after your time in the UK, you returned to America to continue your studies at Harvard in law and then forged a very successful academic career. What areas of law grabbed your intellectual interest? I was very interested in constitutional law, and I was the first lawyer in my family, and my family often wondered, well, let's get this straight. You don't do wills. You don't do real estate closings. You don't do family law. You, you do constitutional law. And the answer was, yes, that fascinated me, partly because of PPE at Oxford and the interest in political institutions that I'd gained there. I went on to teach constitutional law at Harvard Law School for 10 years and at Stanford Law School for another 17. I loved it. I still love it. I still co-author the leading casebook about American constitutional law. And if you ask me why is constitutional law such a wonderful subject, it's about these enduring sets of institutions that can adapt themselves to changing times and an enduring set of rights that can be adapted over time. You might have a notion of due process or equal protection in one era, but those words are broad enough to encompass new rights in a later era. 
Rights that were once thought to prevent racial discrimination were developed to prevent discrimination on the basis of gender and later on the basis of sexual orientation. And the founders, although we tend to uh, re revere them, the founders really were remarkable, a remarkable set of Enlightenment thinkers who crafted a constitution that has done the United States very well across uh, a very long span of time. Not nearly as long as the British Bill of Rights, but pretty good for a new, new country. And laws have to adapt to changing times, don't they? And that's where constitutional law can give you that understanding and that. That's exactly right. You have to figure out if a, a law of privacy that was written for a world of quill pens and parchment paper applies to a smartphone when the police sees it. You have to understand whether notions of government that applied in times of muskets and bayonets can be adapted to an era when firearms might consist of automatic weapons. So the notion of evolution, how do you adapt constant rights and commitments to new technologies and to new populations, that's the challenge of constitutional law. You were a professor at both Harvard and Stanford and became the dean of Stanford Law School. What was it like to lead such a distinguished and high-profile institution? Well, being dean at Stanford Law School was an enormous privilege. I was dean in beginning in the late 90s, just as the internet began to take off. And when I made the move from Harvard to Stanford, it was before the internet had taken off and Silicon Valley became a household expression. And I think my colleagues at Harvard were a bit bemused. Why is she going to this school out in California? Right. But right. Stanford is now, of course, among the leading institutions of the world. It's one of the great universities, along with Harvard and Oxford. And it was enormously exciting to be part of the high-tech revolution that developed in the 90s. As dean, I was able to create the first wireless law school. I was able to start a center for law on the internet. I was able to bring a lot of uh, uh, more international connection to the school. I was able to start a, an LLM, a master's program for foreign students, lawyers from other nations, including the UK. That was tremendously exciting. I was able to start a clinical program where students learned law by practicing law, and it's now one of the most successful clinics in the country. I would say the most, the greatest privilege of being dean was my connection to the alumni of the law school, and the connection between a university and its alumni is an enduring bond that is extremely important to nurture. The loyalty of the alumni to Stanford Law School, their willingness to support the students who came after them through their generosity to the school, and their excitement about their school becoming ever more spectacular and successful was one of the greatest parts about being dean. In 2005, you became a partner at Quinn, Emanuel, Urquhart & Sullivan, a major law firm in New York. Why did you leave academia to become a practicing lawyer? I taught law because I love law, and because I love law, I love practicing law, and I had always practiced law somewhat while I was teaching. I did many pro bono civil rights and civil liberties cases, the occasional commercial case, and when I finished my deanship at Stanford, I was approached by Mr. Urquhart, who I had worked with at a law firm as a young law student many decades before, and he said, you have climbed to the top of the mountaintop in academia. You need a new mountain to climb. Come start the appellate practice at Quinn Emanuel. Well, you know, I did join the Quinn Emanuel and Urquhart firm, but it wasn't yet Quinn Emanuel, Urquhart, and Sullivan. That came later when the founders, John Quinn and Bill Urquhart, decided 
why don't we put your name in the firm's name? And I said, I, I, I still remember the night that John Quinn called to tell me they were going to change the name of the firm. And I, I didn't know what he was about to say. He said, we're going to change it to Quinn Emanuel Urquhart and Sullivan. And I was so surprised, but we realized at that time that uh, there was no other major American law firm that had ever had a woman in its name. Right, right. I am the first and still the only female name partner mm -hmm. in the American Law 100. And that statistic continues to surprise me, but I was a very lucky beneficiary of my colleagues' generosity in naming me to the marquee of the firm. Fantastic. You're widely recognized as one of the top appellate advocates in America and have repeatedly been named as one of the 100 most influential lawyers in the nation. You've also appeared nine times before the U.S. Supreme Court, representing some of the world's biggest companies, including Samsung, Shell, and Johnson & Johnson. What is your proudest legal achievement? Well, this might come as a surprise for a constitutional lawyer, but my proudest legal achievement is probably making the world safe for Android smartphones. I've represented Samsung and Motorola uh, for a m number of years against Apple. Now, I know that some of your listeners are going to be passionate iPhone devotees, and others will have phones that are Android. Well, I've represented Android, and over the five years, I've won a number of legal victories for Samsung that said that Apple could not get injunctions to stop the sale of Galaxy phones. Right, so I'd right. like to think that by working on patent remedies, which is a fascinating area of the law, I've helped enable young people to get cheaper, better, more beautiful smartphones. And oddly enough, for a constitutional lawyer, I've wound up spending a lot of my time on patents, but that's a very exciting set of cases. And we'll be before the Supreme Court for Samsung next year. The United States Supreme Court is going to hear a case called Samsung versus Apple. Right. We'll look out for it. And we're going to say Apple can't get all of Samsung's profits from a supposed patent on a round-cornered rectangular phone. So stay tuned for that outcome. The U.S. presidential race is certainly proving controversial. Can you foresee much work for lawyers in the months ahead? <laughs> There's plenty of work for lawyers in the months ahead. Lawyers are crucial to American politics because we have such complicated electoral laws and elections are run at the state level, not at the federal level. So that's 50 times the legal systems involved. So lawyers will be very involved in the upcoming elections, and we have a lot of lawyers running for president, both uh, Secretary of State Clinton and uh, Senator Cruz are both distinguished lawyers, and there are many other lawyers who have been president and, and many other lawyers working for all of the presidential candidates. And it certainly mm -hmm. seems to be a very uncertain environment here in Washington at the moment, considering the, the upcoming election. Have you got any thoughts, any concerns about what the country is going through at the moment? No, I think we, the rough and tumble of American politics often looks like a spectacle to those who view it from abroad. But to Americans, we're used to it. We know it always works itself out. And I have no doubt that our electoral institutions can adapt to this set of unexpected events as it has done in the past. Kathleen Sullivan, thank you very much for sharing your fascinating personal story and your successful career history with us. To listen to other episodes of Alumni Voices, please visit www.alumni.ox.ac.uk.